you remember what it was like to remember stuff? Um, your memory, memory can be so weird because it happened to me just the other day. I heard a song. It was a, a hymn, and I knew the song, but I had no idea what that song was. And somehow my brain was telling me at the same time, you know this song, and also we, we can't find it. It's in there. But, but at the same time, while that happens, you also will remember things that happened from when you were a kid that, you know, barring a real neurological issue, you'll probably never forget. I can remember, and I think this is probably my very first memory. When I was three years old. I remember the death of my great-grandmother. I don't have any memory of her alive, but I remember sitting at our kitchen table one Sunday night after church eating a happy meal from McDonald's and my mom and my dad talking about this woman that died that lived a long way away and how my dad was going to have to go a long way away to be at the funeral. And he was packing his bag that Sunday night to go to the funeral. Remember that. I remember what would have been just a few months or maybe a year later when I was baptized the first time uh, when I was four years old. And I was convinced as I walked out into the water holding my dad's hand that he was going to drown me. That, that was it, the end of the road at four years old. Uh, but one of my, or at least some of my fondest memories come from when I was a kid and when I played football. Now, I loved playing football when I was a kid. And I loved it for two reasons. One, because I was, a fa- I was fast. And two, because I liked to hit people. And I grew out of one of those. I'll let you figure out which one. But... I uh, love playing football so much so that even now today, when I smell fresh-cut grass, it makes me think of football practice. And I remember specifically one practice, I was probably eight years old, when whatever our problem was that night, apparently our entire team, all the eight-year-old boys on that football team, apparently none of us listened, Uh, we didn't do the plays the way we were supposed to. We didn't get the drill. Something didn't go right. And so the coaches decided that night that they were going to kill us by finishing the practice with an extended period of wind sprints. How many of y'all know wind sprints? Y'all have done wind sprints. Well, that night, we did wind sprints. And we did more wind sprints. And we did more wind sprints until there wasn't any wind left and there wasn't much sprint left. And when that was over, when it was all over, I can remember some of those boys were crying. Some of those boys were throwing up. And some of those boys didn't know any cuss words, but if they did know them, they would have used them. And after it was over, all of us were so mad at our coaches that we were going to quit the team. That'd show them. Treat us like that. We'll just quit. I don't remember if some of them did quit the team. I do know that some of the parents weren't happy about it, so... The coaches really were in trouble. We were. We were just going to quit the team. My problem was that I had a daddy that wouldn't let me quit. In 1 Kings chapter number 19, Elijah, the prophet, is ready to quit. But what he's going to find out is that he's got a heavenly father who will not let him quit. He's got a heavenly father who will not abandon him when he's ready to give up. He's got a God who will not abandon him when he's burnt out, when he's worn out, when he's frustrated, when he's fed up, when he's sick and tired of being sick and tired. That is when God shows up. It's important for us to learn this tonight because there are some of you feel like you've been doing wind sprints. Maybe not physically. That might actually be worse on some of us, but 
in your heart. Life has gotten you in these situations where you feel like you can't catch your breath. And you know how it feels when you've ran and ran and ran and you can't catch your breath and you start to feel kind of panicked. And you feel like the tears might kind of come. That's the way you feel right now, spiritually. And you just want to sit down and... Or maybe you feel like you're going through a spiritual life like this. Maybe like those kids on the Marion Bombers, eight-year-old boys team, you're ready to cuss. You're ready to quit. You're ready to cry. You have a God who will not let you quit. Let's read 1 Kings chapter 19 together. Verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenants, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, a still small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever." Somebody has once said very, very astutely that disillusion always begins 
with illusion. That is, that when we have a dream about what the future can be, that when we have an idea that dances before us like a mirage in the desert, promising our future, that's when we can set ourselves up for failure. As we think about what's on the horizon and we see good things, we see hopeful things, we see paradise shimmering out there in front of us. But that illusion of what might be often leads to disillusion because of what actually is. And that very much is what's happened to Elijah. Elijah has had a lot of illusions and he is now experiencing disillusion. Elijah has been the prophet of God. He's preached as really the most vocal, faithful witness in a time of great apostasy in the nation of Israel. Stood up to King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. He has been an incredible preacher. That's true. Elijah thought that as the preacher, God would answer his prayers and do incredible miracles when he humbled himself and he sought God and he prayed. And it was true. God did. And Elijah thought that if he preached hard enough and if he prayed sincerely enough, that everybody would see the power of God on display and there would be a great revival that would work its way down into the hearts of the people of Israel from the top down and the bottom up and they would be transformed inside out. Close. It didn't happen. And when Elijah realized it doesn't happen, and then when he's threatened by Jezebel here in the early verses of chapter number 19, Elijah hits the road. And he runs as far as he can, really. And he lays down under a juniper tree, lays down under a broom tree, and he says, Lord, that's it. We're done. I'm done. I'm no better than my father's. And I wish you would just take my life. I don't think that Elijah wants to die. But I do think that Elijah is tired of the life that he's living. Elijah is burnt out. Elijah has used up all the gas in the tank. Elijah's battery is empty. Elijah has nothing left to give. Because Elijah has nothing left to give, Elijah has very much lost his sense of self. I talked about that with you last Sunday evening. Elijah says this really dark statement about his own worth, right? I am no better than my fathers. What good is my life? What have I done? I'll replace that. Just can't take that out of my check. I am no better than my fathers. I haven't accomplished anything. I haven't done anything. I'm not worth anything to me. I'm not worth anything to God. I'm not worth anything to anybody. And I think the reason that that happened is because Elijah confused his identity as a servant of the Lord and his activity as a prophet of the Lord. And what I mean is because Elijah's activity for the Lord was not fruitful, Elijah believed his identity was not valuable. Let me say that again. I want you to hear that. Because his activity was not fruitful, he believed his identity was not valuable. He's lost his sense of self. He's lost his sense of direction. Isaiah, Isaiah, we don't need to bring him up. Elijah, he's doing fine. Elijah is not being led by the word of the Lord. Elijah is being led by fear. Fear and a desire for change, a desire to escape, a desire to get away. He's lost his sense of belonging. You can see in the words that we read tonight that Elijah feels like he's the only person carrying a burden for the Lord. He's the only person working hard. He's the only person serving. He's the only one that God has got, and it's kind of festered inside of him until there is a real me versus them mentality in Elijah. 
And Elijah has become so burnt out, he's just lost all common sense altogether. He's lost his sense of self. He's lost his sense of direction. He's lost his sense of belonging. And he's just lost all common sense. Jezebel says, Elijah, I'm going to kill you. And I want the gods to kill me if I don't kill you. And so Elijah says, I don't want to die, so God kill me. That doesn't make any sense, does it? When people are burnt out, they start praying prayers they don't want God to answer. They start making decisions that they're going to regret years down the road. They start doing things without any sense of balance. Like praying for God to kill them. Like trying to quit. That's what Elijah's doing. Elijah's not so much suicidal as much as he is giving the Lord his letter of resignation. Lord, I'm not even giving you two weeks. I'm done. I'm out the door. Find somebody else for this profit business. But it's there. It's there that God meets with him. It's there that God comes to him. It's there that God recharges his battery. I'm going to give you all this illustration about my wife, only because she's not in here. She's helping with the kids tonight. Sila and Asa, y'all aren't listening, are you? Don't. Okay, good. I love my wife dearly. I hope y'all know that. <laughs> what? What did you say? Baby, I'm preaching. This is the way this works. This is, I'm, I'm the one that talks here. We'll work on it. I love my wife dearly. But my wife's cell phone is never charged. Ever. It hasn't been above 20% in five years. I promise you. Now, I don't know what your routine is and what your habits are, but my phone charger is on my nightstand beside my bed on my table. So the, one of the last things I do at night is I plug it in so it charges all night and so I can run on it the next day. And I have explained at length and in detail this theory of mine to my wife. And don't get me wrong, she's not dumb. She has a phone charger plugged in on her side of the bed. But somehow, just, just doesn't get together. Because, you know, men are from Mars and women are from wherever y'all are from. We're different. But what has to happen when her battery dies on her cell phone is it has to be recharged. What happens when the tank is empty? It has to be refueled. What some of you need tonight is you need to figure out how to refuel your tank. And more importantly, you need God to refuel your tank. But what does it look like when God refuels the tank of Elijah? What is it that you need God to do in your life tonight so that maybe you can move beyond this season of burnout and discouragement into the next stage of ministry? What does God do for Elijah? Well, God bakes a cake. I mean, he does, right? Am I right? Like, he, he, he bakes a cake. Elijah has been on the run. And Elijah has ran from chapter 18, verse 46, from Jezreel all the way to Beersheba. That's 90 miles. That is a level of running that is like an ultra-marathon distance runner. This is, and Elijah must have been in good shape, but this is peak physical fitness. But I can promise you that once you run for more than an hour, you're going to start to need some fuel. But Elijah has ran for hour after hour after hour after hour, pushing his body to its limit and beyond until he finally collapses 
no doubt in spiritual and mental exhaustion, but also under physical exhaustion and says, that's it, I quit. If I had to run 90 miles, I'd be praying for God to kill me too, I'm just telling you. And so Elijah is ready to die. And what does God do for Elijah? When Elijah's having this pity party, when Elijah is frustrated, when Elijah is ready to quit, when Elijah has lost his sight of his mission, when Elijah is in this comparison trap where he talks about how nobody is as good as him, what does God do? Does God show up with a sermon? Does God show up with a well-timed rebuke? Does God show up and just, does he answer his prayer? No. God comes with carbohydrates. He makes him a cake, and he feeds him, and he provides for him. And the reason he does that is because there is real heart work that is going to have to happen inside of Elijah, inside of Elijah's internal man. But until the outward man is taken care of, until the external man is taken care of, Elijah is not going to be in any shape to listen to what God wants to say to him. So what do you do with a quitter? My dad wouldn't let me quit. What do you do with a quitter? Well, you take their notice and run them off. If they're not going to work, get them out of here. Or you tell them to hush and get back to work and you pile it on so much that maybe they will finally walk away and quit running their mouth about quitting. What do you do with a quitter? You make them a cake. You let them take a nap. That's what Elijah does. Isn't that not remarkable? That God lets his prophet eat. God brings him water. God brings him food. God allows him to rest. So, Brother Jesse, that's not really the most remarkable thing in the Bible. I mean, there's miracles and incredible. Sure. But Elijah didn't need that. Elijah needed sleep and Elijah needed calories. And that's what God provided for him. So think about what this story is really telling you here. This story is telling you that our God not only gives us what we need, but our God gives us exactly what we need. That this is the God of heaven who speaks in Genesis chapter number 1 and universes fly into being, bakes a cake. Why? Because that's what his man need. And I assure you today that our God knows exactly what you need. You might be so burnt out today you feel like you don't have another Sunday in you. And you might be so discouraged right now that you feel like you can't open your Bible and hear from God and you don't want to talk to Him to let Him hear from you unless you give Him a piece of your mind. That's the only conversation you want to have with God. You might be full of doubt. You might be full of fear like Elijah and full of questions. But I'm telling you, our God knows how to take care of you. Our God knows how to meet you right there in your point of need and in your point of hurt and give you whatever it is that you need, even if all you need is a piece of cake and a nap. God knows how to give it. And so hear me what I'm about to tell you. Cling to this truth with everything in you if you're burnt out tonight, if you're struggling, and if you want to quit. Cling to this truth like a life jacket and like a life preserver in the middle of the ocean. Our God feeds his people in the wilderness. I thought about this today during Sunday school. Brother Ken, I'm going to rip off your Sunday school lesson, man. I've already blew this thing up, so now I'm going to rip off the Sunday school lesson. In Mark chapter 6, all of those people come to Jesus and they're hungry. And the disciples are tired. They're like Elijah. They need a break from ministry. They need a nap. And yet there's all these people to minister to. And then all these people that are needy are also hungry. 
And so the disciples think, well, what are we going to do? We don't have the money to feed these people. We don't have, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, well, won't y'all go give them something to eat? Okay, Lord, with what? And he says, well, what kind of food do you have? He said, we've got five loaves and two fishes. All right, set everybody down in companies of fifties and hundreds. I'm going to pray over this, this, this handful of food, and you're going to start passing it out. And they did, right? They start passing it out. But if you read that account in John's gospel, in John chapter number 6, the people see it, and they start making connections that we don't make. They start saying, wait a minute. Moses, with the Lord's help, he fed our ancestors in the wilderness. And now all of a sudden, here's this man who's just feeding people out here in the desert. Jesus knows the connections that they're making, that they're supposed to be making. And Jesus says, yes, Moses fed y'all in the wilderness, your ancestors in the wilderness. And yes, I may be giving you bread and fish now, but I am the bread of life, Jesus says. And he says, if you come and if you will feast on me, he said, I will satisfy you in a way that physical food could never satisfy you, and I will feed you in a place that physical food never could touch. Why? Because God feeds his people in the wilderness for 40 years while the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness, while they wandered in the wilderness. Will God take care of us? And they tested God in the wilderness. In Psalm chapter 78, they said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Every single morning, God said, I can furnish a table. I can feed my people in the wilderness I can sustain you I can bear you up and I can carry you safely through and the Lord Jesus is saying when he feeds those people what he's saying to Elijah here that God can provide for his people if he has provided Jesus for us then he will in him provide everything else for us he that spared not his own son for us Romans 8.32 he that spared not his own son for us but delivered him up freely for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And so tonight, some of you are burnt out. Some of you are tired. Some of your battery is flashing low. And it's as bad as it's ever been in your life. But our God knows how to feed you in the wilderness. Even if you're saying, can God provide for me? And can God help me this time when I don't want to pray and I don't want to serve and I don't want to go on? God can provide for you. God can meet you right where you are. And so God feeds the prophet. And then he says in verse number 7, Elijah, now that you've eaten, get up and go. For the journey is too great for you. I want you to hear what God says to Elijah compared to what Elijah has said to God, or will say to God, twice in fact. Lord, everybody else has turned their back on you. Everybody else has forsaken you. Everybody else is bowed to these false gods. They're killing the prophets. And I am the only one left. Elijah wants to talk to God about what he had done. God wants to talk to Elijah about what he can't do. I'll say that to you again. Elijah wanted to talk to God about what he had done. God wanted to talk to Elijah about what he could not do do. Because Elijah in this moment of weakness need to be, needed to be confronted with his own inabilities. He needed to be confronted with his own limitations and realize that his God was there to carry him through when he was limited. 
One thing I know that's true about you, just as it was true about Elijah, is that you do not like to be confronted with your own limits, do you? But serving the Lord is going to uniquely confront you with your own limits. Because God is going to put you in situations just like he put those disciples in in Sunday school this morning. Go feed all these people. I can't because he wants you to rely on him to do through you what only he can do through you. And in those moments, you are going to be confronted with your inabilities, confronted with your limitations, confronted with the truth about your capacity to remind you that he is God and you're not. And this is not something that, that I don't think Christians handle well because we're humans or that Christians talk about well. We don't talk about our capacities well. You could go to the gym if you're physically capable of it and you could deadlift 100 pounds 10 times. You maybe could deadlift 200 pounds five or six times. Could you deadlift 1,000 pounds once? Doubt any of us in here could do that. I don't know, some of y'all are pretty big. You might could... I can do it. It's capacity. The burdens that we're able to carry. And not all of us have the same capacity. We just don't. God has made each of us different. But what we do as Christians is we think, like some of us as believers, are wired up like Honda motorcycles. Some of us are wired up like dump trucks. And they're different. They have different purposes to fulfill. But a lot of times the Honda Christians look at the dump truck Christians thinking, man, I wish I could carry those heavy burdens. And the dump truck Christians look at the Honda Christians thinking, man, I wish I could go that fast. And we all sit around and just rust out in the junkyard of the faith because we don't realize who God has made us to be. But the one thing I will tell you, whether you have large capacity, high capacity, or low capacity, whether you know your capacity or care, the one thing you don't have is you don't have the Lord's capacity. And that's the point. The point here is that Elijah needs to realize, oh yeah, I can't do this. And I need the Lord's help to take another step. To take it. Yes, I may have stood on Mount Carmel and prayed and God sent fire down from heaven. Yes, I may have prayed over a sick boy or a dead boy and God raised him back to life. Yes, I must have seen, I may have seen God put oil and meal in that barrel for years. Yes, I may have stood up to Ahab. But I can't take another step unless the Lord strengthens me. Maybe. What God is doing in a season of discouragement and burnout is getting you to that place. So God makes a cake. Then God initiates a conversation. Elijah goes to Mount Horeb. The Lord asks him. He's going to ask him twice. But he asks him the first time in verse number 9. Second time in verse number 13. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, use your imagination for a moment. How did the Lord ask him that? What did the Lord sound like when he asked him that? Was he saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you not back preaching where you ought to be preaching? Why are you not doing the work I had for you to do? Maybe. I think that's part of it. But I think what the Lord asks, based upon the way the story unfolds, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here at Mount Horeb? And that's a good question for two reasons. One, it's good for all of us tonight to ask ourselves, what am I doing here? 
discouraged, defeated, praying for God to kill me on the run, full of fear. Why am I where I am? What am I doing here? But second, here's why this is important. Because most of us would know Mount Horeb, that's a more familiar name of Mount Sinai. This is the exact place where Moses met with God in the book of Exodus. Where he spent 40 days and 40 nights on top of the mountain. So experiencing the glory of God that when he came back down, people couldn't stand to look at him. And they had to put a veil over his face. Because every pore radiated with the brightness of God's presence. Why is Elijah at Mount Horeb? I believe Elijah was at Mount Horeb because he wanted that. God, in fact, if you look in verse number 9, he came to a cave and lodged in it. Remember when God passes by Moses in Exodus chapter 33 and 34? He hides him under a cleft of the rock. I think Elijah's there. Lord, I'm here. Show me your glory. Lord, let me see it. Because, Lord, I've done right. I've earned it. I've been jealous for you. I've served you. I've preached. But then the Lord says, Elijah, go stand on the mount before the Lord. And then, perhaps the most familiar part of the story... The Lord passes by. In some way, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind starts to tear the mountains apart. The presence of God is so intense that the very creation is starting to come unraveled and yet God wasn't in it. I can't explain that to you. It's just what Scripture says. And then after that, there's an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in that. And then a fire, but God was not in the fire. And then the still, small voice speaks. And God was in that still, small voice. Why is God doing this? What is this? What, what, what's, what, what's the riddle here? God was weaning Elijah off of his dependence on the spectacular. Because everything up to this moment in Elijah's walk with the Lord had been amazing. It had been indescribable. It had been miraculous. It had been like nothing anybody had ever seen. But y'all, that is not the way God normally works. It's not normal. It's not usual. We should thank God for the extraordinary. We should also realize that the extraordinary is extraordinary but that we live ordinary lives where we go to ordinary churches and we do ordinary things and we have ordinary services and we spend ordinary mornings reading our Bibles and we pray ordinary prayers. That's the way God works and the way God forms His people. But a lot of us who have been to the top of the mountain, a lot of us who have seen the firefall and experienced the power and the glory, we can't be satisfied with the ordinary, can we? And yet God wants Elijah to be satisfied with the ordinary as long as in the ordinary God is present and God is speaking. So what are we really after in our relationship with God? What are we really after as a church? Do we just want the light show? Do we want the earthquake? Do we want the fireworks that are loud and impressive for a second? Or do we want the ordinary voice and presence of God? Do we want the ordinary? I think if nothing else, we should consider the theological implications of Elijah's discouragement here. What I mean by that is, 
Elijah's mad at God. That's the problem here. It's not so much that he's afraid of Jezebel, even though he is. Elijah's mad at God because God hadn't handled Jezebel. And I get it. Jezebel's terrible. I wish God would have handled her too. Well, he does. Um, but you can read that for yourself. But this is a unique burden that the Old Testament prophets had. And it's hard for us to maybe wrap our minds around. We just have different problems than they did. But here's their problem often. This is the problem Jeremiah had. It's a problem Isaiah faced. It's a problem Elijah has. God called them. God said, go and preach the preaching that I bid you to preach. You go and you preach on my behalf. You stand in my place and you speak to my people and you say, thus saith the Lord. And these faithful men, they went. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here I am, Lord, send me. And they go. But when, when you go, Isaiah, they're not going to listen to you. You're going to go and you're going to fail. You're going to preach and there's not going to be any result. You're going to do your part faithfully and there's not going to be this incredible outpouring of a harvest. Do you know who the most successful numerically, the most successful Old Testament prophet was? It was Jonah and he was mad about it. The rest of them preached faithfully and they were mad because they didn't have the experience Jonah had and Jonah was mad because he didn't have the experience they had. It's very confused. And so what Elijah can't figure out is, God, why are you not honoring your word the way I think you should? God, why are you not moving the way you ought to? God, why are you not saving your people? God, why are you not just killing Jezebel? It's so obvious. Why don't you do it? And so Elijah is trying to process all of this data on the ground with what he believes to be true about God and he can't fix it and he can't reconcile and he can't make it work and he can't get the right solution that satisfies him and he's in this spiritual anguish wondering God why are you the way you are and so let me encourage you today if you can to dig down deep into your discouragement dig down deep into your burnout and ask yourself what is it really saying about God because some of you are discouraged and deep down you really are saying about God God doesn't care You're saying God will not take care of me. You're saying God doesn't love me. You're saying God is not here for me. God has forgotten me. God has abandoned me. Could you tonight be believing things about God that you know are not true? God can never use me again. And that's where the story ends. God makes a cake. God initiates a conversation. And then God gives Elijah a new job. He puts him to work. And really, this is the job that he always had. But now, God expands this position. At least he expands his helpers. He says, I'm going to hook you up with Hazael to be king over Syria. Elisha, who's going to eventually take your place. Jehu, who is just going to be an incredible dude in the Old Testament. God comes to Elijah, who's ready to quit. He feeds him. He speaks to him. And then he says to him, Elijah, it's time to go to work. Now, y'all, I'm going to tell you that for a person who's exhausted, for a person who's been doing wind sprints for a half an hour, the last thing they want to do is go for a jog. For a person who hates their job, and that's, that's some of y'all, I know, you hate your job, and the last thing you want to do is set that alarm clock to get up and go to work in the morning. I get it. The last thing somebody who's burnt out in ministry wants to do is show up for church. And yet here God comes to this guy who just hates everybody and everything and says, Elijah, you've got work to do. And somehow, instead of grinding Elijah into powder 
and finishing him off for good, it lifts Elijah up. That's totally backward. It shouldn't work. It must have been some really good cake. That's the only thing I can think. But I think what Elijah needed to hear from God at that moment was really nothing more, nothing less than Elijah, you still have a part to play. Elijah, you still matter. Elijah, I still care enough about you to include you in my work. And Elijah, the story is not over. Because Elijah's struggle with God, his struggle with himself and his struggle with life was, why am I not accomplishing more? And he needed to hear from God, Elijah, it's not over yet. It's not over. I'm not done with you. There are greater seasons of ministry on the other side of this discouragement where you will be more effective because of this, because you've learned to lean on me, because you've learned to see me moving in the ordinary. Elijah, you are going to be better on the other side of it. And so my encouragement to you today is that if there is breath in your lungs and there is a God in heaven, your story is not over. Your story is not over. God is not done with you. God still has a part for you to play. That may mean a change in direction. It may mean a new opportunity. It may mean a transformation in your own heart. It may mean any number of things. But I promise you that our God is a God who meets His people right where He met Elijah. When they have nothing left to offer, nothing left to give, nothing left to pray except their own disappointments, their own defeats, and their own discouragements. That's where God shows up. Friends, the good news of the gospel that we believe tonight is that our God is a God who meets people at the point of their need. Now, you know as well as I do that needy people are exhausting because they always need something, and they're a drain. And after enough time around enough needy people, you're going to start pushing needy people away. But our God has deep pockets. Our God has abundant resources. And our God is never put off by our need for Him. In fact, it is our need for Him that draws God to us and says, I will come to you right there when you're broken heart. I will come to you when you need a slice of cake. I will come to you when you need to take a nap. And I will be there for you in your need. And our God has said to his people, I can and I will provide a table for you in the wilderness. If I have to put the angels on half rations, I will take care of my children. And I will be there to give you another opportunity and to give you a new start. Because when you need me, that is when I will be there for you. When did Jesus heal the leper? When he was sick. When did Jesus show up to help Lazarus? When he was dead. When did Jesus feed the 5,000? When they were hungry. When did Jesus rise again from the dead? When all hope was lost. And that is exactly when God will show up and exactly when God will help you. And so on the other side of it, you will be able to stand in victory and in peace and in joy and not sing, I need thee every hour. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. But on the other side, you will be able to say, I have thee every hour. Every hour I have thee. Every hour I have thee. Our Heavenly Father, there are people here tonight that need to dine spiritually on what Elijah dined on physically. Provide for your people. Give them what they need tonight to take the next steps tomorrow. Help us, God, in our need to trust in you. Even, Lord, when we feel like we are 
fighting you. God, help us to fight with you and not fight against you. We do need you. But we know we have you in Christ. And because of that, we have everything we need. Provide for us. Go with us, Lord, as we leave this place. Be near us, guide us, and keep us safe, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me...